listen, it's clearly going to be a delayed vote, uh, yeah. d- delayed outcome. Uh, there's there's no way it couldn't be. And, you know, from the media side, it's it's really interesting. And I, 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 I hope it's done well that the media has to prepare people for that. They have to, every single time uh, Election Day is mentioned from here on out, say, and by the way, we're expecting it to take two weeks. Whatever the count is when the the night comes to an end, that is not a final count. And in fact, that's maybe not even a good indication of what the ultimate count will be. They just need to get in front of uh, any party who might may claim that the, uh, the day of count represents the the meaningful sub. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. I am your host, Suto Kavari. On this episode of Oxford Policy Pod, I am joined by my dear friend, Everett Rosenfeld, who was CNBC's Asia-Pacific editor before joining me at the Blavatnik School at Oxford. On this episode, we are talking about the upcoming US elections. The name of this episode, which I quite like, Everett, is Make America Vote Again. And I'm really I'm very proud of myself for that name. <laughs> But uh, Everett, let's get started. Um, the U.S. elections. How do you feel? Uh, well, hey, Suta, thanks for having me. I uh, I feel nervous. I feel like uh, there's going to be so much. There's going to be such a torrent of news in the next two months leading up to these elections. But at the same time, I just I just can't wait for them to be over. Uh, um, in addition to, to formerly being the Asia Pacific editor for, for uh, news outlet CNBC, I also at one point had a managing role in the 2016 presidential elections for CNBC. Um, so uh, for the digital team, but we, I, I helped run a team of uh, reporters and editors who were breathlessly covering the presidential election between Donald Trump and uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And it was, at the time, the most sort of intense news cycle that, uh, that anyone in, in my cadre of U.S. political reporters had, had ever experienced. And that, uh, you know, I, I, still, I still think a lot about uh, the decisions we made and the, and the, and the actions we took uh, in covering that uh, from the perspective of the media, covering that election which uh, none of us really had any uh, had any had ever had any experience like that before. Um, so uh, I'm feeling a lot of feelings as this election is coming up. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit wistful that I'm I'm not in a newsroom right now, but I uh, am also feeling uh, like a uh, a weight has been lifted off my shoulders because I I don't have to pull 23 hour days covering uh the most volatile news cycle uh, ever no i can imagine i mean i guess during 2016 there was just so much happening and just so much news that was consuming everyone and i guess when you when you compare it to this year not a lot has changed in that sense i think you know there's just so much news that we have to sort of cover and how do you think the pandemic has shifted or changed the way the election is covered I mean, we had conventions that were v- virtual, and I think that's something that might continue going forward. But how do you think that co- the pandemic has impacted on how the, the selection cycle has been covered? Mm. 
Well, uh, obviously, a lot of a lot has been said about how the pandemic has affected the election cycle itself. But in terms of the coverage, what really stands out to me is that uh, one of the criticisms uh, many in the media, especially uh, sort of large companies that uh, are not uh, Fox and News Corp affiliated, uh, the criticism that many such companies received was that they weren't uh, going out into different corners of America and they weren't interviewing uh, every kind of person. And that's how they missed this sort of large groundswell of Trump support because they they just assumed there were all these people who weren't going to be voters, but then they, they came out in support of Trump. So uh, that was a criticism that was leveled at the media. Um, you know, and there was some, there was some fairness in that. Uh, maybe it was exaggerated a little bit, but there's some fairness in that. But then uh, there's, there's sort of not, there have not been any calls to do the same this time around, just because uh, there are no large gatherings. You know, you can't go to a Trump rally and interview people. Uh, well, I mean, there have been some Trump rallies, but not on not on the order of uh, what they used to be. And you know, you can't go and hang out in a in a town square and and try and talk to people because. In person reporting is uh, has been made more challenging, not impossible, but more challenging by the pandemic. So you're seeing fewer calls for that uh, sort of reporting. But on the other hand, you know, the a lot of media companies have spent or media outlets have spent the last three years, three and a half years, doing that sort of reporting to sort of uh, bolster any any holes in their uh, their reportage that have happened. Uh, before Trump's first election. So um, that is one way the pandemic has been affecting it. Uh, also, there were all kinds of, uh, in 2016, there were all kinds of s- allegations about things that were happening on the ground, uh, skirmishes between Trump staffers and the media, you know, allegations about uh, the way Trump supporters were, were interacting with the media, et cetera. And you're not really seeing that so much this time around just because there is fewer uh, person-to-person interaction. And when you have those fewer and fewer personal interactions, how do you gauge what are some of the key issues that you that are, that are driving the... So like people's sentiments towards the elections, what are some of like the burning issues that you think are going to sway the elections outcome? Well, it was always a bad sampling methodology to ask people at the rallies what their sort of most important issues were because those anybody who came out were uh more often than not were, were diehard fans and so they weren't representative of the median voter who's really who you're caring about in this situation but i mean if you if you look at wide wide sort of large sample size polls the issues seem to be uh, how the pandemic is being treated and, and the economy. So, uh, so there's sort of two ob- the two obvious things. Um, you don't you're not seeing a lot of uh, coverage in the media of Trump's um, uh, other other policies that have sort of slid to the back burner. As much as the Trump administration might want to talk about those, yeah. um, that the salient issues comes back to the uh, the old, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. And I mean, during when you mentioned this earlier, and I think it's a point that it's also important for us to explore, is you touched on the point about, so like the lessons that the media learned from 2016. And I mean, there were a lot of allegations leveled against the media 
and how they elevated or the false equivalencies between Hillary, uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton's emails and Trump grabbing, well, I don't think that needs to that needs repeating, but all the outlandish things that President Donald Trump would say, and then we, and then there's like false equivalencies of what, you know, what uh, Secretary Clinton's emails represented, and I think, and I and I remember speaking to the BBC's North American editor John Sopel, and he told me that you know no one knew how to cover Trump because he wasn't a conventional politician. Um, he was seen as, in some circles, as a joke, uh, as an entertainment candidate. So the level of scrutiny that you'd apply to a politician like Obama, like Secretary Clinton, um, that completely went out the window with someone who had that entertainment value in a sense and who was unconventional in the way that things just weren't, he wasn't held to account. So what do you think were some of the lessons that the media drew from 2016 and how do you see that being um how do you see that being implemented in during this uh cycle hmm. well um it's, it's certainly true that the media struggled and many people in the media struggled to understand how to how to cover trump um and that implies that there there's sort of a right way and a wrong way, but uh, and maybe maybe that's not true. Maybe you know it's hard to be normative about these things. But the uh, I'll take this one issue at a time as you raise them. The issue of uh, talking about Hillary Clinton's emails and then talking about Trump's like more salacious comments as opposed to uh, more potentially in depth analyses. Is 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 maybe a mischaracterization of what happened. Um, There, you know, there there were a lot of stories about Clinton's emails, but there were also a lot of stories, including ones that I wrote and oversaw, that were sort of went in depth about uh, Trump proposed policies and sort of uh, issues that sort of uh, became salient after he took office. So it's not that uh, the media totally missed the boat on that. A lot of what we were seeing and a lot of uh, where that criticism comes from is about what stories were promoted and what story, you know, in terms of physical front pages or uh, digital front page home pages <coughs> and uh, what stories were sort of leading and what was getting promoted on social media. And that was, you know, uh, that was a function of not uh, of, of many newsrooms not using their own editorial judgment about what was important and were just uh, reflexively responding to um, traffic levels. So yeah. the stories about Trump saying something outlandish, you know, had hundreds of thousands of, of clicks in the first hour. And if that story is just, you know, tearing it up online, why wouldn't you put it at the top of the homepage? You know, everyone wants to read this story and your, your, your internal uh, monitoring systems are showing that. So you would be crazy to sort of bury it at the bottom. And yeah. you, likewise, oh, sorry, my phone is not. Likewise, uh, the Hillary Clinton email stories, uh, because of a narrative that had been established, maybe not by the media, but certainly continued by the media, there was a large group of people in the United States who became sort of obsessed with the emails, a large group of readers who became obsessed with the emails issue, either because they genuinely thought it was an issue 
or because they were just sort of hoping or hoping it would sink or hoping it would not sink Hillary. And so um, those stories were similarly just just uh, traffic gold. You know, you, you would just get so many readers, so many eyeballs on that. And um, and and I we personally saw that with uh, with with when her when Clinton's emails sort of resurfaced uh, just before the elections when when James Co- when the FBI uh, uh, resurfaced the issue. I mean, uh, any econo- any analysis that we had conducted about you know what Trump's foreign policy or what his economic policy would mean just never stood a chance against uh, in terms of traffic against a story about Clinton's emails. So to summarize, the issue was that uh, we, the media industry, uh, you know, has been, had been for a long, for several years and struggling to make ends meet. And we were just starting to figure out uh, how to really sort of succeed in digital. And the name of the game was to use these sort of real time metrics to monitor things and give the reader what they want. And, it turns out when you give the reader what they want, what they want is things that uh, maybe are not of the most high caliber from an editorial perspective. So it is undeniable that news agencies have met most of them, most of the good ones at least, have learned their lesson uh, this time around. Uh, um, you know, certainly when I speak with editors at, at most of the sort of name brand outlets, uh, we all acknowledge that that was a lesson that that we learned through the election by sort of seeing stories that fundamentally had no consequence on a political or democratic level that were uh, unwisely vaulted to the top. And what I, just wanna, about- I just want to clarify, this is not saying that uh, the news industry should be directing opinion. You know, they are still just writing the first draft of history and uh, covering the truth and covering the truth fairly uh, without yeah. partisan uh, bias. But no. at the end of the day, you can't, you know, you, you can't be a responsible citizen and, you know, make mountains out of molehills or uh, bury things that are, are fundamentally important. But one of the other things I also wanted to ask you was um, what other lessons do you think um, are at play in this election cycle that news outlets learned from 2016? Or how is this election cycle being covered differently, or maybe not this time around? Um, well, one of the uh, big issues in, 20, in our coverage of 2016 elections was um, uh, the leaks of, of, of Clinton, or of, I guess it was, Clinton staffers uh, emails and um, sort of the how WikiLeaks was distributing them um, and newsrooms did not well many newsrooms I'm sure there were some but many newsrooms did not have processes for how to handle unsubstantiated leaks uh, especially in circumstances where some of them seemed some of these leaks seemed to absolutely be true and then, but we didn't know if some others had been altered. There was sort of uh, no uh, no way to fundamentally clarify uh, and confirm a lot of these uh, these 
hacked, stolen, allegedly stolen emails that were uh, posted online. And that, that created a real problem. And that was, uh, in many ways, uh, what, what fueled a lot of the concerns about uh, foreign interference in that election. Yeah, there were fake news stories, but there was also sort of selectively uh, distributing stories that were maybe plausible. And um, it just, it cast a, uh, cast a, a specter of sort of corruption uh, unfairly on uh, the Clinton campaign because it, it, you know, it sort of implied they were having all these backhanded things when one, you couldn't compare it to other campaigns. So you don't really know how it stands uh, comparatively speaking, but also you weren't, a lot of news agencies didn't get the full story because, you know, nobody would confirm or deny. And um, I, there haven't been to my knowledge, any similar leaks, but news agencies are much better prepared to handle that this time around. Uh, we, uh, when I was still with um, my former company, but a lot of other places I know have really sort of established uh, methods for dealing with that. And similarly, just on the on the issue of foreign interference in general, uh, the social media companies have gotten better at vetting things. So um, we would get tips about stuff that had, including, you know, uh, things like, you know, allegations that, that Clinton staffers had uh, engaged in impropriety uh, while on the tr on campaign trail. And, you know, we had really no way of confirming it, but this story would get, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands, at least views on through Facebook and Twitter. And then people would come to us and, and then other sources, you know, there would be sort of like false confirmation. People would say, oh, I heard this. And then it would sort of filter up through into uh, mainstream media through through that way. And um, uh, journalists have gotten a lot more skeptical about sourcing through social media, uh, which obviously they should have been from the start. But also the, the social media companies have gotten better about stopping that kind of stuff before it gets... Uh, out of control. And, um, you know, just importantly, I, I don't even know if the story that I, I just referenced was in fact true or not, but uh, I know that we sourced it, that it came to us through social media and we had to decide what to do with it. And those are, those are problems that are not happening as often. Now. And, and I mean, in looking ahead, what, what is it a little over two months before um, the the country votes? Um, how is mail-in voting going to impact on election night? Uh, do you think we're going to see uh, delayed election outcome, res uh, delayed results? Or what do you think the outcome is um, going to be on election night with an increase in mail-in voting? I mean, you know, we know what happened in Ohio uh, and other places. How do you think that's going to play out, um, especially with the president uh, talking about how mail-in voting uh, is not safe or secure, you know, instances where he's encouraged people to, to vote twice. Um, so how do, you, how do you think election night is going to pin out? I'm really glad you asked that question because I have no idea and anyone who tells you they have any idea is lying to you. <laughs> Just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not aware of anybody who is an expert in uh, sort of media coverage, U.S. Postal Service, uh, 
electoral ballot casting and the mind of Donald Trump. Uh, so <laughs> there is an expert uh, that sort of matches all those uh, confluences of uh, spheres of knowledge. You know, please let me know. But uh, and I would like to meet her very much. But yeah, I have to trust them. <laughs> um, no, I mean, listen, it's clearly going to be a delayed vote, uh, yeah. d- delayed outcome. Uh, there's there's no way it couldn't be. And, you know, from the media side, it's it's really interesting. And I, 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 I hope it's done well that the media has to prepare people for that. Yeah. Um, they have to every single time uh, Election Day is mentioned from here on out, say, and by the way, we're expecting it to take two weeks, whatever the or whatever, whatever the count is when. uh the, the night comes to an end, that is not a final count. And in fact, that's maybe not even a good indication of what the ultimate count will be. Um, they just need to get in front of uh, any party who might may claim that the, uh, the day of count uh, represents the, the meaningful sum. Be- because uh, obviously that would be uh, a perversion of our democracy. And it... Uh, will be a, a tough battle or uh, it'll be a tough argument to win if you if you haven't begun preparing people for this outcome yeah so I, I would say if you look at this coming election that is the single biggest way that it is different from last time that the media has just a real ethical duty uh, they need to prepare people for this drawn-out process uh, and maybe that is their most important ethical duty because there's not so much happening in person right now. Uh, polls will say what polls will say, but sort of breathlessly covering them is maybe counterproductive. Uh, if I were in the newsroom right now, I would be focused uh, monomaniacally on making sure that our readers were uh, aware of the upcoming uh, delay and results and really sort of explaining it, sort of dispelling any any uh, allegations, potential allegations of impropriety. And to what extent do you think um, we can trust, not trust, I mean, trust is not the right word. I mean, to what extent do you think um, we can use the polling, so like the polling that's coming out now, to ascertain how the election is going to sway? I mean, Biden has consistently held an eight-point lead over Trump over the last few months, um, do you think that that polling uh, that lead is going to hold, or should we treat polling with a higher level of skepticism, especially in the age of the pandemic? You know, um, polling polling is not pseudoscience. There, uh, if the polls suddenly swung massively in favor of Trump, that would point to to some kind of swing. And sure. similarly, if Biden opens up a 60-point lead, you could reasonably uh, say that in a free and fair election, he was going to win. But um, as we remain within the margin of error uh, in swing states, or as we, we flirt with the margin of error uh, in swing states, uh, I would definitely say that no one should be confident about any outcomes. Uh, and, you know, uh, if you think about what was going on uh, in the 2008 elections with Obama and McCain sort of uh, between September, between September and the, the, uh, the ultimate election day, there was a whole financial crisis. So yeah. 
a lot of news can still happen. Uh, nothing is a sure thing. And um, yeah, I uh, you, I read the polls, but I I certainly uh, I have my experience in 2016 has has taught me well about uh, probability. I, yeah. uh, a lot of people made the mistake of seeing you know 60 percent chance of win uh, and thinking and you know this sounds stupid because we all you know understand how math works but uh, it at at the time you saw 60 percent and or, or whatever the number was and everyone seemed pretty confident and it was uh, even in the media when you're not rooting for anybody and you know you're not uh, you don't have have a have a stake in it. It, it most people in, in in newsrooms across the U.S. had taken it for granted in the final weeks that Clinton was going to win, and uh, they they allocated resources ac- accordingly. And uh, my team was lucky that we we didn't make mistakes like that, but uh, I know of newsrooms that did. And so uh, I don't think anybody's gonna gonna take anything for granted this time. I think we all have uh, learned an important lesson about how probabilities work. Yeah. I mean, I can't have you on the podcast and not talk about um, the choice of Kamala Harris as Biden's running mate. And now as someone who watches SNL, I'm very excited about the prospects of seeing Maya Rudolph on my screen quite constantly. But tell me about the symbolism of having Kamala Harris on the ticket. Uh, well, first of all, how are you getting SNL? I, I'm geolocked out of it. Here in the UK, I well, I don't think I don't think they're hearing what kind of dark arts you're practicing. <laughs> well, I don't think they've they, they haven't aired any new sh- any new shows. So I'm just I'm just I'm hoping that the election swings a certain way so that I can watch Maya Rudolph. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, uh, what do I think about the the well? Okay, from from a pol- political perspective, uh, I'm not sure that you you were ever going to see any boost from Biden picking uh, Harris, but uh, there, there, there could have potentially been a downside if, if he had made the wrong choice, if he had made a choice that alienated voters by either, um, well, you know, there was plenty of dialogue about what that, uh, what that alienation, alienating voters move could have looked like. Um, and, you know, it's tough to know how much of that was posturing, but, you know, uh, Harris, is is a a, a very strong uh, su- uh, very vocal supporter. She's been a uh, a uh, a real boon to this <laughs> uh, world of digital campaigning, where uh, just a few strong sound bites uh, can carry the day. And um, uh, obviously, uh, the the significance of her background is is not lost on anyone. And uh, yeah, I uh, I look forward to uh, seeing a, a vice presidential debate. I, I think that that would be um, she she came out swinging in the in the Democratic primary debates, and um, I think that she will prove a competitor on the stage this time around. Yeah, I mean, if her Senate if her Senate appearances are anything to go by, I think um, the vice president is in for a ride. Well, Everett, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for having me. Yeah, I don't think I'll call you an election night. I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll give you that night for yourself, and then call you two days afterwards. Um. <laughs> so I've already begun having sort of uh, having dreams about twenty sixteen. 
because uh, you know so many things that I'm seeing, seeing and reading during the day are reminding me of it. Um, and uh, it's just it was it was so stressful because you know I had my finger on the button for 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 different kinds of headlines for different kinds of uh, outcomes, yeah. and uh, I. I'm glad I'll be able to, to, to watch it on election night instead of participating. Yeah. All right. Everett, thank you so much. That was my dear friend Everett Rosenfeld talking to us about the U.S. elections. Thank you for listening to Oxford Policy Pod. If you liked this episode and you liked what we're all about, why don't you subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod? Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or really wherever you get your podcast. Oxford Policy Pod is produced by students of the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. It is researched and produced by James Morris, Ellen Tipping, and me, Suta Kavari. That's it. Goodbye.